define sustainability, odds are your definition is completely different from the next person's. Appalachian State University's Director of Sustainability, Dr. Lee Ball, sits down with his guests to explore the many ways in which sustainability affects our lives. This is Find Your Sustainability. I'm here with Jeff Biggers, the celebrated author, journalist, historian, and playwright. He's currently the leader of the Climate Narrative Project, and he serves as writer-in-residence in the Office of Sustainability at the University of Iowa. Jeff is joining us on campus this week, meeting with faculty and students, and is performing his multimedia theatrical piece titled An Evening at the Ecopolis, Envisioning a Regenerative City. So Jeff, thanks for being here. I'm really happy to talk to you about your work, and I'm most interested in your story. You live in Iowa City, but you have some deep roots um, here in Appalachia. So I'd love for you to share with us um, a little about your story and how you came to do this work in the sustainability kind of space and, and specifically your connection to, to, to our region. Great. And thanks so much for having me. Uh, it's great to be back in Boone and at Appalachian State, uh, which I know very well. You know, my family has deep roots in Appalachia going all the way back to uh, before the American Revolution as Baptist dissenters who came down and who took an active part in the American Revolution uh, even part of the regulator movement, which was, of course, a rebellion uh, prior to the American Revolution, sent a lot of people into the mountains. But soon after the American Revolution, my folks continued to go with that westward migration, going into Kentucky and the Cumberlands, and then just following sort of the, the trail of woodsmen looking for other areas. And they ended up, believe it or not, in southern Illinois. I think often when we think of Illinois, we think of Chicago, we think of corn, we don't realize that it's this very long, skinny state that, you know, 360 miles from Chicago is where my family lived. Uh, it's a beautiful place where, in fact, the Wisconsin glaciers stopped and we had these amazing upheavals. So we actually have a very similar uh, mountainous region uh, that you might find in the Cumberlands or even the Ozarks, uh, incredible biodiversity. And that's where my family lived for 200 plus years. Uh, as a kid, uh, uh, we were uprooted. It's a community of coal mining. My family, of course, came out of coal miners in a very rough area, a very rough area in the backwoods as well. And so as a young kid, we uh, packed up the old 60 Chevy and my folks moved out west, continuing this migration. Uh, but we never forgot our roots. And, and that was something that I felt I needed to go back and really discover at one point. Uh, a turning point for me uh, uh, I had two turning points. One was, uh, as a student, I was at the University of California, Berkeley, in 1981. Um, I ended up dropping out of school for various reasons and hitchhiking across the country. And I was still just a teenager, a 19-year-old uh, freshman at that point. And I, for some reason, wanted to go back to Appalachia. And uh, I didn't really know quite why. And uh, I was hiking along the trail, working in communities. And at one point, uh, I was working on a farm, and I was camping in the woods, and I had to hitchhike back to where I was camping. And I waited for a long time, and I had been bit by a dog that day on the farm, so I was really kind of frustrated. And somebody picked me up, and I got into the car, and I'll never forget, I said, you know, it just takes forever to get a ride with hillbillies back here. And he stopped his car, and he said, get out. And I, I'm like, you know, I, I'm, I need to get to my campsite. I'm tired, I'm a, a kid, I don't, you know, I just, uh, and I kind of, I'm a hillbilly, this is my roots, I can use that word. And he said, get out, you know, you, we, we don't have hillbillies back here, we have mountaineers. Uh, and I, I was kind of uh, perplexed by that, and I thought, this is interesting. And I said, what do you mean mountaineers? And he said, hey, if you're really interested, 
then let me take you somewhere. And so this was just uh, just on the other side of the gap, Cumberland Gap, you know, it's sort of that nexus where Virginia and North Carolina and Tennessee and, all, and Kentucky come together. And I hopped into the car, he went, we got my backpack, and he drove me hours into West Virginia. And he dropped me off at this farm, this folk school. And that really began this kind of long journey home. I stayed uh, at a folk school, at a farm all summer, working at an incredible place that really wanted to look at the progressive role of Appalachian history. It was founded by the same person who had founded Highlander Folk School in eastern uh, Tennessee. He had gone on to do all sorts of things in his life. His name was Don West. He was a labor organizer. He was a poet who had national fame. He was someone who had been a great educator, sort of the godfather of Appalachian studies. And here was this old, cranky, lanky uh, man on a farm who woke me up at uh, 4.30 that morning to go milk cows and began with this discussion of, did you know? And that was this, did you know about the history of Appalachia? And that really rooted me and brought me back. And really, it's been a 30-plus year journey since then to really go deep into understanding who I am, what is this region about, and, and what can we really learn about Appalachia being in the forefront of so many things in the United States. Don told me one thing I'll end with is that you can't understand America until you understand Appalachia, because it's really been on the front lines of so much change and shift. I'll never forget hearing that from him uh, on the farm stuck with me and still sticks with me today. Wow, that's beautiful. So <clears throat> could you explain how you've experienced similar learning communities, uh, learning styles, in some of your international travel. Certainly. You know, one thing Don did on his farm, and, and this is, we're talking 35 years ago, was that he began to see the role of self-sufficiency as something we had lost, this tradition in Appalachia. Part of our struggle, both in the coal fields of where I'm from in Southern Illinois and what we have in West Virginia and Central Appalachia and other parts down here in the Carolinas, is that we have lost this sense of self-sufficiency within the mountains of how we can provide our own uh, energy, our own food, you know, our own sense of place. And that powerful sense of self-sufficiency that we can kind of regenerate our own communities is something I have seen that uh, not only Don worked on, but many people have in Appalachia and on a global level, many other different communities. In the 1990s, I spent a year in India uh, in a community very similar to here, it was way, way up in the Western Gap Mountains, which is on the border of Tamil Nadu and Kerala. And there was a similar community. It was a mountain community that had been gone through massive deforestation through logging and clear cutting uh, and pretty much had left the local community in ruin. And there was a local boy who had grown up there. He had become a follower of Gandhi and then went off to a very unique university outside of Calcutta called Shantiniketan that had a very much of an environmental sustainability emphasis in the 1920s and 1930s. He uh, met up with some Americans who you know, funded his trip to come to the United States in the 1950s to see cooperative movements and other education experiments all around sustainability. Of course, we didn't use that word back then, but the idea was self-sufficiency and self-reliance. It was really about revitalization of who we were. And then this young man went back to his community. But what was unique to me was while he was in the United States, he spent a tremendous amount of time in Appalachia, both at the Highlander Folk School, the John C. Campbell Folk School, North Carolina, and in this area particularly, just to see how people were interacting with their, their region, with the nature, with the environment, how they really were building on, on, um, on endeavors to be self-reliant uh, and to be you know, basically communities that identified with their nature, with their ecology. 
Um, and therefore, that connection between Appalachia and India, to me, was fascinating. And I've, I've seen similar movements where people continue to believe that, you know, in fact, the land does determine our culture. And our ecology has to be part of any kind of design, be it an urban design for a town or a city or a rural area. Jeff, could you, could you explain the role of the arts in this work? I understand communities that are very isolated. They learn to be resilient because they kind of have to. But have you experienced, um, even in those places, um, art being a strong part of it? Certainly. I love talking about Appalachia because I, I talk about where was the first Nobel laureate for literature given to a woman. And of course, it was given to Pearl Buck. And when she arrived in Stockholm, they said, well, we love all your novels about China, but we're giving you this memoir. Excuse me, we're giving you this Nobel laureate for your beautiful memoir about being from West Virginia. Then, in fact, this tremendous literary tradition is deeply rooted in who we are in Appalachia of, of telling stories, be it through the first work of fiction and social realism was someone like Rebecca Harding Davis, who talked about the role of immigrants uh, in Appalachia and, and published in the Atlantic Monthly in 1861. To the other end of the arts is this incredible rich heritage of music. You know, I, I think we often forget about Appalachia being the crossroads of both uh, Europeans and African-Americans and the Cherokee. And of course, that's beautifully shown in, in the work of Nina Simone, who grew up in the backwoods of North Carolina, just outside of Asheville, who, you know, was very proud of the fact that the second song she recorded when she became this very big star, both in, uh, in New Jersey and then eventually in New York City, uh, was uh, Black is the, the True Color of My Love's Hair, of uh, this beautiful old British Isles ballad that she had learned in the backwoods that she had made her own. And so I talk about this role of arts. It, it's been powerful, and, and, and probably the strongest one has been our role of storytelling, that we have the wherewithal to sit around and envision another world, another reality, to take what's happening today and put it into context for us, to fill in the gaps, to go beyond any kind of sense of data and actually fill it up with people, to give it some meaning to who we are and, and, and really tell stories that change people's lives, stories that make us think in a different way. And I think that's the role of arts that I really have come out of. Uh, now at the University of Iowa, I've, I've founded a project called the Climate Narrative Project. And there I work with both undergraduate and graduate students to use the arts to tell a better sustainability story, particularly with an eye to climate change. Because we feel like there's this massive gap between science and action. And that gap, I feel, ultimately can be bridged through our arts and storytelling traditions and our narratives. That we can learn to use film and theater and radio podcasts like this, or the visual arts and sculpture or dance, or all the different types of narrative modes, and to begin to use those as means to tell a better story to get people to do something uh, both in sustainability and climate action. You know, we always struggle with converting knowledge into practice. And I think that's one of our biggest hurdles in the work that we do. You know, there's a lot of knowledge. We don't need to reinvent a lot of wheels. But the, the practice piece is, is really challenging. I see it internationally. I see it locally. And I think it's beautiful that you, you know, mentioned the arts role and and helping people with that kind of active practice, you know, work the boots on the ground that are needed, you know, to do this work. I wonder about people's sense of hope, and I wonder how you and your work, how do you inspire hope? Sure. I mean, I think that's the great thing about being a historian is you realize we've gone through these dark times uh, again and again and again and again. 
and we somehow managed to pull through. And once again, let's just use Appalachian examples since we're here. You know, in 1780, it was an incredibly dark moment in the United States. We had our Declaration of Independence on July 4th, 1776. I think a lot of people think, well, you know, the next day we went and celebrated and went to the mall and went shopping and it was over with. And they didn't realize that the revolution went on and it went wrong and we were losing. And George Washington didn't have an army and, and Washington was an extremely incompetent military commander and you had mutinies and, you know, the funding wasn't there and the South was split. And uh, at a certain point, they came to a stalemate, and there was a secret negotiations to perhaps just give the Americans the North, and the Brits would take the South. And on that, the Brits came, and they eventually, uh, they came and they shifted to what they called the Southern Strategy, and they took Georgia, and then they finally won Charleston, South Carolina, and they were just rolling up the Carolinas, you know, and Lord Cornwallis, you know, had warned, you know, that they were on their way to get Washington. And it was an extremely dark moment. I mean, I think we really thought the great experiment that Tom Paine had given in Common Sense was not going to come true. And at a certain point, the mountaineers here, precisely where we live, in, in Boone and along the mountains, came together. They were absolutely inspired by a teacher and a man who had both been a, a, a minister but also had run a log cabin college to begin to engage and to march. And they came across, you know, as the, the, the backwater men, and they came across the mountains they agreed that there would be no commander, but each person would be their own captain. You know, communities offered whatever they could in terms of materials and food and lead to make bullets. And they came down the mountain, and eventually they met up with one of Cornwallis's platoons there at the Battle of Kings Mountain. It's on the, on the border of South Carolina and North Carolina. And they, and they had a battle. And in fact, the, the Patriots won, and they beat the Loyalists. And, and, and something that's very important about that battle is I think we have this kind of uh, idea that somehow the British invaded us. But in fact, there was only one Brit on that battlefield that day. That was the commander. The rest were North Carolina loyalists. And it was a real civil war for us in the South. But it, the good news is the Patriots won. And it galvanized the Continental Army. Suddenly we realized we had a, a Southern Army. You know, George Washington had once mocked the South saying that they would turn hightail at the first glimmer of the bayonet. But in fact, the Mountaineers had come down extremely organized because they'd been working for decades, you know, in a, in a movement of independence here in the Carolinas. And they able, were able to kind of, uh, you know, give hope to the rest of the United States that the revolution was worth it. You know, Thomas Jefferson said the Battle of Kings Mountain turned the tide of the American Revolution. And of course, within a year, we had the surrender of Cornwallis in Yorktown in Virginia. And we were able to then go on to the experience uh, of the United States. And this kind of turning point in our history, these hinge moments, I think we need to go back to again and again and see how, in fact, we can come together and we can work this out uh, as different communities, and, and especially looking at the history of Appalachia. This is very similar for the anti-slavery movement, for the civil rights movement, you know, to the labor movement, to today, I think our challenge, of course, is sustainability and climate change. Jeff, your performance tonight uh, called Ecopolis... Is it a call to action? You know, it's a, it's a theater piece with music that basically helps people envision what Boone will look like in the year 2030 as a regenerative city. You know, I was the keynote speaker here at a conference six years ago, and it was called After Coal. We were comparing Appalachia with Wales, and my dear friend Tom Hansel done it, and Pat Beaver, and all these wonderful people I'd worked with for years through the Appalachia Studies programs. And I left that conference six years ago kind of chagrin, thinking, you know what? When push comes to shove, I can't really tell you what 
we can do after coal. You know, I grew up in a coal mining community. I grew up in a county where 80% of the county was owned by absentee landlords, that we had the highest unemployment and poverty rate, that our communities were completely uh, left in ruin in terms of discharges. Our creeks were completely sterile now because of the strip mines. You know, that we literally had been left with just utter hopelessness. And so what could we do after coal? And that really... I can really say after that conference here at Appalachian State, I began to do this journey of wondering, how do we begin to revitalize our communities? And so it took me back to India, you know, of that village revitalization program that 50 years later, after he had visited Appalachia, he had recreated one of the most regenerated, one of the most beautiful indigenous forests you had in the Western Ghat Mountains. They had created this completely self-sufficient community that, you know, created his own food, had its cottage industries, and really operated in the context of where they lived. And I began to look at other models from around the world, and I, I really stumbled on to this, the role of what they're calling regenerative cities. The idea that we need to begin to look at our cities, not in a linear way, that, okay, I need electricity, I'm going to import it from the coal fire plant and then spew out my coal ash waste. Oh, now I need food, I have to import it and bring it up the mountain and then spew out all my work, all my stuff into the landfill with our garbage that we begin to see our towns and our cities in a circular way, just like a circular metabolism, and that we have to have a circular economy. You know, nothing utopic or naive, the idea. Obviously, we live in a globalized economy, but the, the very needs we have, we can begin to produce. And once again, this is how it used to be in Appalachia 100 years ago. And I began to really think about, well, how did it go wrong? You know, we used to essentially live in what we call a necropolis, an agro town, you know, and that we provided for ourselves. And then after the war, what truly happened was we became a petropolis, cities that are based on petroleum, cities that, you know, widened our streets, created these long highways, we'd truck things in, we began to change completely. And that has been a 50-year aberration compared to the centuries of how we've actually maintained our communities in the past. So building on that, the idea is now we need to create an Ecopolis. Polis, of course, meaning city. Eco, of course, meaning environmental. The idea that we go back to the Agropolis, but through using modern technology in a way that we can create a city of the future. And so we begin to look at all realms of, of, of how we interact, that we go beyond sustainability, because as we all know, nothing is sustainable, that we begin to look at things in a regenerative context, be it our food system, our transportation, our urban design, our waste management, our water quality, you know, these are all things that really matter in terms of us as a town and as a city. But the final important thing about the regenerative city is how we have to go beyond doing less bad. And I think this is where you and I have to have really struggle with our colleagues in the sustainability department, is that we have this kind of context of sustainability basically means doing less bad to endure what we're going through. We need to adapt to this kind of system. And, and my question I asked, for example, students yesterday is, what do you call adaptation when you're adapting to a failed system, a system that you know is going to collapse? And how do we go beyond doing less bad to actually doing something that repairs the damage to the ecological system, begins to enhance nature, that uses that word that a lot of us shy away with to heal the damage that we've done to ecology? And that's where regeneration asks us to restore our relationship with nature, to rewild our towns and cities, and to begin to have a connection between the forest and the hinterlands or whatever ecological community you live in, a river town like I do, and to begin to bring it back into the city. 
One of the most beautiful experiments is Adelaide, Australia, a city of a million people. They brought in this uh, urban planner and ecologist named Herbert Girardet as their thinker in residence. He convened all these great forums, and he really, you know, they were a typical city that was facing drought, dependent on coal fire plants, imported 90% of their food, had a massive problem with the landfill. And basically the idea was let's re-envision and rethink how we do this. And today, 10 years after that experiment, this is a, a place that gets 60% of their electricity now from renewable energy. 82% of their urban waste goes to circular compost outside the city. They have tens of thousands of acres that's using that compost and dedicated to vegetables and fruit trees. The city planted over 3 million trees as part of a soil carbon sequestration program and reconnecting with who they were as not only just desert dwellers, but also with desert trees. They created actual districts that are 100% renewable and created a transportation, including the first solar bus in the world, which allowed people essentially to walk or bike or use meds of uh, public transit that would get them out of their car. And they completely transformed their city using that circular way. And that is something that really excited me. I thought, now it's time to bring regeneration back into the coal fields. Jeff, as we imagine how to turn Boone, Appalachian State, the high country, into a more regenerative space, I was thinking about the design process, that design thinking process. You know, it's easy for us to sit around and design things on paper. It's easy for us to, you know, talk about it, you know, in a sterile room. Can you talk about the importance of just simply walking in our community and experiencing what needs to be done and the opportunity for us to thrive and not just, you know, kind of um, rely on this adaptive management technique that we, you know, tend to fall back on. Yeah, it's great. You know, actually, one of the first lines of my, my monologues tonight is, the only way to understand our city is to begin to walk our city. And we have to literally get out and walk in our towns. And I think you're so right. I think it begins with literally trying to understand a sense of place. Begins with understanding why, why do we call it King Street? You know, who is king? Why do we call it, you know, this knob or that knob in this town? Why do we name our town after Daniel Boone? And then we begin to, and those kind of things seem kind of artificial and ridiculous, but there's a sense of, of grounding us in who we are. You know, yesterday we, I asked all the students, you know, where does your electricity come from? Where does your water come from? Where does your waste go to? Where's your landfill at? You know, and where does your food come from? And those questions, once again, begin to talk about our sense of place or our lack of sense of place. From there, we begin to envision how we can transform. I think what's very important is what you say is that we can't just be in these rooms and set out these blueprints as if I can take this blueprint to Iowa, to North Carolina, to California, to India, to Mexico. It doesn't work that way. Every city has to take what it has and transform and evolve from your own legacy and your own reality of your ecology here and your own needs. The needs of Boone are entirely different from the needs of Iowa City and entirely different from Adelaide, Australia. And so that sense of place, I think, has to be primary. Then the envisioning process through the community actually then begins to build on not just the experts in the field, but the common sense legacy that we have people in the towns themselves bringing together the entrepreneurs, the farmers, the ecologists, 
the people who have lived there forever, who begin to understand, this is why you live in this area. This is what you could do here. This is the watershed. This is where this could go. This is how, this is what used to grow here. This is what can't grow here, you know? And you convene those through a series of forums, and then you begin to chart out a vision of the future. And I think this is where the arts and storytelling becomes very important and something I'm gonna strive for tonight. It's through storytelling, it's through theater, it's through film, it's through art, it's through music. It's a way to get people to actually see what it could look like. I think our gap between so much science and action is that we have this kind of obstacle, this element of being blocked that we can't really envision what life would be like if we weren't depending on a coal fire plant or what life would be like if we didn't have to depend on uh, oil-based or petroleum-based uh, uh, vehicles. I think we have to show people, not in a utopic way, but in a very real way, what Boone or what any town could look like 20 years from now. And if this is what we want, if this is the vision, then we simply now have to find the roadmap to get there. Could be it's gonna take us 50 years to have a regenerative city. Could be it's gonna be 10 years to create a regenerative city. But you set those benchmarks, you know, a very similar example for you folks would be the town of Oberlin, Ohio. And there, of course, you have the great work of David Orr, who's one of our environmental gurus and uh, urban planners who created the Oberlin Project in the 1990s. The idea is Oberlin set these benchmarks that within 20 years, we want to have 50% of our food produced locally. We want to have a reduction of carbon emissions by X amount. We want to have a certain level of energy efficiency. We wanna have a certain level of renewable energy. We wanna have a transit system that gets at least 40% of our people out of the cars and walking or biking like Copenhagen. And so the Oberlin Project, which is a town of 10,000 people, began to envision the future, set their roadmap, create these benchmarks every five to 10 years and work their way through it. And then once again, it's something that was introduced through stories, through dialogue, through bringing people together which is really the old-fashioned way of doing things. And as you'd say, it's just so much more productive and effective and authentic than experts sitting in a room with a blueprint thinking that they have all the solutions. Um, the Oberlin Project is near and dear to our heart. One of our alumni, Sean Price, is the director of the project. Oh, and I didn't know that. David Orr is a dear friend of ours and comes here to our Appalachian Energy Summit every year. Great. And um, we really respect his work and, and his vision and his passion. I'm interested about regenerative design. You know, it, that term and those conversations started a while ago, like 70s and mm. the early 80s. And we're seeing it again. Why do you think that now it's come back? You know, when it first came out, I think a lot of it came out of Germany at one point. And the Germans certainly uh, in the 1990s uh, had a major shift. Uh, the role of the Green Party, as small as it was, was able to introduce some ideas. For example, having um, a feed tariff uh, with your electricity, which would allow you, if you put up a solar panel, to be able to sell back the excess electricity to the power company. And that began to allow decentralization of their electricity, for example, that then sort of helped support the a growing role of the solar and, and wind and, and for them, biomass. But I think the ideas never took root because of the tremendous force of the oil and gas and coal lobbies, that uh, they were sort of good ideas. But when push came to shove, especially within the energy field, they kept just getting squashed down. You know, uh, I, I think we all know Jimmy Carter put solar panels uh, on the White House in the 1970s. 
And there was this incredible movement. Uh, one of our great philosophers, of course, was Barry Commoner coming out of Washington University, who wrote a very important book, The Closing Circle, that really informs a lot of the regenerative city movement now, is that they're using his same context of, of what Commoner was talking about in the 1970s. But I think the, the role of the lobbies, the role of, uh, of politics and whatnot, uh, I think so much of our work was waiting on Washington to take the first step. And it just never filtered down into the communities. Um, in the last few years, though, I think we're seeing a, a rebirth of the regenerative movement because I think people realize the action is going to come local now. And I think now more than ever. I wrote a piece for the New York Times recently saying it's good cities are, that are going to lead the climate movement now. And that makes me excited and inspired. I feel like we're in a period of, of doomsday scenarios. You know, we're dealing with a federal administration that denies climate change, who is kind of uh, removing so many different environmental regulations. And I think there's this sense that we're doomed, that there's not going to be a commitment to the Paris Climate Summit. And I come at it from a completely different perspective. And I don't know if it's just because I'm incorrigibly optimistic, but I feel like now the burden is on the local communities to take the lead. And we're seeing that, you know. We're seeing the, the role of New York, the role of Chicago, the role of San Francisco. Here you have a, a very conservative Republican mayor in San Diego who has set a very ambitious uh, role of being 100% renewable by 2030. You know, you, you have the cities saying, hey, this is our responsibility and we're going to take the lead. And I think we have to remember 75% of our carbon footprint comes from the cities. You know, not so much the little towns like Boone, but bigger cities. But I think even towns like Boone can be in the forefront of this movement that it's going to be the local entities that are going to lead us in climate action. And I think the, what we're realizing, it's through a regenerative approach, more of a circular approach, that's going to be the most effective and the most successful. So, Jeff, um, where's your edge? What are you excited about right now? And where, where do you see yourself doing next? Well, as you can tell, I, I kind of have my hands in many different things, but I, I'm really, you know, I get in this old, cranky, gray hair age that I, I want to work with young people and train a new generation of climate storytellers and climate leaders. Um, when I went to the University of Iowa a few years ago, they asked me to do more creative writing, and I said, you know, I could, but I, I'm just not interested. I, I really want to work on climate change through the perspective of being a writer and through the arts. And so uh, I really actually have invested a lot of time to create this climate narrative project where I have created fellowships. We work with both undergraduate and graduate students. We take people from all the different departments. And we, in fact, we kind of uh, snub the creative writers. We feel like they have enough opportunities. But we work with scientists and engineers and people in agriculture, which obviously is, is quite big in Iowa. We work with educators. We work with psychologists, sociologists. We work with people from every department to come together, to sit across a table, and to begin to talk about these various themes of sustainability or regeneration and climate change, and how we can tell a better story. And so they go through a very rigorous practice of public speaking, a very rigorous practice of learning how to make a film, to do theater. We bring in dance faculty to teach them how to do dances. We bring in visual artists. We, we show them how to make a radio podcast. You name it, we try to train them and give them tools to become more effective climate activists, to be truly climate storytellers and to become climate leaders. And the idea is it's not just a one semester long project. What I'm hoping is then they take these tools and they go back to whatever the department they're in and they begin to work with their colleagues and their fellow students and their faculty and staff to become even better communicators uh, with these tools. 
And I think ultimately that's going to be our future. And that's something I'm investing a lot of time in. And I think a lot of it comes from spending, you know, almost two decades as a journalist and as a historian, as an activist fighting the coal industry and realizing we didn't get very far. You know, we didn't stop mountaintop removal. Uh, my community is in ruins. You know, I have three cousins working underground now uh, who face horrific uh, working conditions that three people still die every day from black lung disease, a disease that affected so many people in my family. That in fact, uh, you know, yesterday our president signed a bill rolling back the last of little rules on stream protection. That we're not going to save my community and central Appalachia until we begin to come up with ways to transition, what we call a just transition, a way to, to regenerate our communities without waiting for some kind of magical um, you know, wand to, to happen. And, and that's the kind of thing, really, that I'm very excited about. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for coming and sharing your stories and your perspective. And thank you just so much for just being alive on this planet and doing <laughs> this work because we need more people like you. Thanks so much for having me. Appreciate it. Find Your Sustainability is a production of the University Communications Department at Appalachian State. It's hosted by our Director of Sustainability, Dr. Lee Ball. The show is produced by Troy Tuttle and Megan Hayes. Dave Blanks records, edits, and mixes. Pete Montaldi and Alex Waterworth are our web team. Find more episodes of this and other interesting podcasts at AppalachianMagazine.org or check us out on iTunes. Just search for Appalachian State University under podcasts.